Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today we dive a little further into Wittgenstein's Tractatus, focusing on propositions three and four out of the seven propositions of the book. There are things that can be said and there are things that can only be shown. What is this say-show distinction? What difference does it make? How does it get us to that final proposition where Wittgenstein says that we should shut our traps about what cannot be said? Well, Joel will explain some of this and then we'll discuss it a bit. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for more information on our entirely volunteer nonprofit. You can find blogs, other podcasts, as well as some possible upcoming events. And of course, if you'd like to support us, please pray for us. And if you are so inclined, the website has a place where you can donate. And you can also rate us subscribe and share us with your friends and so on and so forth. If you have questions, frustrations, or requests for me and Joel, email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an A. Or tweet us at Toward Wisdom. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, Joel and I are continuing our discussion. Really, it's just me listening and learning. Uh, about Ludwig Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. And today we're going to be talking about, well, Joel's going to be talking about, and I'll be sort of stupidly asking them questions afterward, propositions four, uh, three and four out of seven propositions of the book. Now, as we said last time, and we've mentioned several times, there are seven propositions, but that doesn't mean there are only seven sentences. There are a bunch of sub propositions that serve as support for that proposition. And the book is organized uh, in such a way that you can see how they sort of relate in terms of importance to the main proposition. I don't think we've gone through and just read the propositions for you yet, though. And there are only seven propositions. I'm going to read them. It's going to get real ugly somewhere in the middle, and we're going to have to explain those propositions later. I'm not going to try to. Um, <laughs> so I want to just read them very quickly, the seven main propositions of the book, so you can kind of get an, a sense of of how the book is progressing or maybe you'll hear them and you'll think, I have no idea what any of that means. And Travis needs to shut up because he's wasting wasting our time learning what it means. But you're just going to have to deal with it. I'm doing the podcast. You're not. So let me go ahead and read them. The first proposition is, the world is everything that is the case. The second proposition, what is the case, the fact, is the existence of atomic facts. I'm not going to do any explanation. I'm just reading them. The logical picture of the facts is the thought. That's the third proposition. The logical picture of the facts is the thought. The fourth proposition is the thought is the significant proposition. So the third and the fourth are the ones we're going to be talking about. Those are the ones we, I just read. Those are what Joel is going to explain to us so clearly that we will have mastered these by the end of this podcast. Uh, the fifth proposition is propositions are truth functions of elementary propositions. An elementary proposition is a truth function of itself. Now, I, I will say what truth function means. Truth function just really has to do with whether something is true or false, what determines that it's true or false. And so truth function is kind of a weird term, but uh, what, more explanation will probably come later. Now, the sixth proposition is just stupid, and I don't even want to read it, but I'm going to. Uh, it's not stupid as in Wittgenstein was stupid, but I'm stupid. So the general form of truth function is a bunch of symbols. This is the general form of proposition. Now, 
these symbols have to do with how variables and elementary propositions and operations that we do on those elementary propositions determine whether something is true or not. Let's put it something like that. Yeah. Uh, again, Joe will explain that to us when we get to that uh, episode. That will not be today. And then the seventh proposition, uh, which is the last sentence of the book, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. On that note, I can't really speak about any of this, so I'm going to get quiet and let Joel explain propositions three and four. Before, before I do that, I'll, I'll give the warning that five and six sound really dry. And as I think I mentioned in the last episode, they are kind of really dry, but there are elements in them that uh, Wittgenstein keeps reminding us that um, there's more going on than just this. This is, this is a, a certain language, a certain, well, we're going to talk about syntax. Um, and the there's more going on. And so we actually get some of the best lines in the book in propositions five and six. Um, and so while they, the propositions themselves seem dry there, they also stand as reminders that uh, such language is limited and there's a lot more going on. So proposition three, Travis read, the logical picture of the facts is the thought. Now we're starting to put some of the, the things together that we've been talking about with the picture theory at the end of, or in proposition two, we have the picture. Um, we, when we put all of our uh, true thoughts together, we, we get this picture of the world, this bigger picture Um we it's not necessarily something that we are uh, consistently aware of all the propositions but there's a there's a both a coherence and kind of a correspondence going on that the, the all of these things have to cohere together in some way to us to the one to those of us who have the picture um and we think that the that these these facts, these pictures are corresponding with reality, or at least our best attempt to correspond with reality. And so uh, when we think about the logical of, logical picture of the facts as the thought, just the, the short, short version is saying that, yeah, these, all these pictures, when we put them together and try and express something, that's a thought that we have. Um, he's going to explain more of it to get clear on what's going on and how this starts to connect with propositions. Uh, first, he says, we cannot say how an unlogical world would look. Again, this gets to the, the idea I've, I've mentioned before, that, that if there's an, a contradiction or, a, um, or trying to put things together that don't fit together, like the color three, a circular square, you know, those kinds of things, uh, they we can't say how that would look. I mean, we, we, we can try and paint a picture in people's minds and it's not going to make any sense because the, these are unlogical. They don't fit together. Um, they, they, we, we don't know what to do with them. So, um, he says, 
he then goes on to say, in the proposition, the thought is expressed perceptibly through the sense senses. That is what we talked about earlier, that our our thoughts are our projections of the relation to the world of, of the pictures we have. So again, we our pictures are trying to connect with reality. They're, they how we how we understand everything fitting together, what what reality is. We have these pictures and we're trying to to say or to communicate them because if if we can't communicate them it it, it makes life a lot less interesting. I mean part of part of life is is communication, is trying to help others see what you see and to figure out how to see what others are seeing, or at least trying to. Um, and then he's going to start getting a little technical, but this, this, these technicalities are going to be important because he's starting to, to um, get more clear on the specific functions of language and dividing between them uh, so we can be clear about what we're doing when we do certain things. So he's going to start talking out about names and about relations and about propositional signs. Um, these, all of these relate to, are starting to relate to the truth function stuff that we'll talk more about in the next episode. But one thing I want to point out, and this, if you're not a philosopher, this might go over your head, but I'm going to try and and help you understand what he's saying, because this is a key part of understanding how Wittgenstein's using these terms. So in 3.1432, he says, we must not say the complex sign, and then it's lowercase a, uppercase r, lowercase b, says... A stands in relation R to B, but we must say that A stands in a certain relation to B that says, or A, but we must say that A stands in a certain relation to B says that A are B. And you might be saying, I don't get it. What Wittgenstein is saying there is that our, our language, that these signs aren't saying, aren't explaining the relation they're just saying there is a relation so that there is a relation between these two objects. It's not saying what the relation is. It's just saying there is a relation. Now I've been very intentional to, to use the word say that there's a relation because we're going, we're going to get more into that. If you remember when we talk about pictures, we talk about what they show but Wittgenstein's using the word say here when he's talking about how the communication is happening with these with these signs. So we he's getting into language specifically and and the way that that words are used not to paint pictures but to communicate meaning in the words themselves. So he's he says you know we have these names of of objects but the states of affairs can be which we can describe, but we can't describe the name itself. So, for instance, when when I talk about, um, you know, if I talk about a dog in my yard, now I can start to describe that state of affairs. 
but the the name dog i can't i can't describe fully dogness because it 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 doesn't have that specificity that's required to really give a description the names kind of point at something but they don't to get the the specifics you need a state of affairs you need the 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 object named in a certain state of affairs to be able to really describe it. Um, a lot of times when we describe a name, what we're doing is we're describing a state of affairs that the name is in. In fact, Wittgenstein would say all the time we're doing that. When we talk about a generic name, to describe it, we have to put it into a state of affairs. That might seem like a weird point to make, but what Wittgenstein is saying is us oh, state of affairs. We start painting pictures. We start getting more going on. When he starts to use the word describe, that's starting to be in the showing, the painting, the picture, the name itself is, is really just a stand in for a variable, which we'll get to more in, in future uh, propositions. Okay. Am I allowed to interrupt you here and ask yes, a question? Yes, please do. Because it sounds like what you're talking about relates to the classic issue with Plato and the idea of the forms that we can. Everything describe. relates to Plato for you. Amen. <laughs> uh, now, if I can just squeeze Nietzsche in here somehow. But the idea of dogness versus dog. So, if I use the word dog, I'm. It's such a. It's an abstract term that covers all animals that are dogs. And so there's no specific description. It's a generic, we could call it the form of dogness or something like that. And so this, this has no truth value. It's not true or false. And there's nothing we can really say about how it relates to anything until we put it into a concrete situation. Talk about that dog or the dog name such and such belonging to so-and-so in that location or whatever. And so, what was it? What was I trying to get out about this? Or I guess what was the question I was asking? But I guess it sounds like the same issue. Plato, in my understanding, Plato talks about this kind of stuff as something that cannot be that cannot be said either. It's not something that's said; it's something that's perceived, uh, which is what happens when somebody shows you something is you perceive it. <laughs> so there's what is shown, and there's what is seen. Um, as opposed to what can be stated. And so, uh, there are things here. I mean, it sounds like this is jumping all the way to proposition seven already. He's, he's saying something about what's not, what we shouldn't be able to say. Uh, anyway, I guess, I guess I wanted to throw that out there. And does that, does that sort of strike a chord? Is that kind of what yeah. Wittgenstein is talking about? Yeah. He, he, he go well, a little later. He says, that um, we can only name objects. That we can't um, we can't assert objects. We can only or assert names. We can only speak of the objects. We so when we when we give a name, we're speaking of an object. We're not um, we're not saying the object itself. And so it, it's. I mean, if we had decided for some reason to call dogs. Um, uh, 
banjo pups or whatever i don't know but some other uh weird name uh that wouldn't change the object it would just change the name it the the name doesn't say anything about the object apart from it's what we've attached to speak of the object it's not the object itself so uh, forgive me for this but would you say that wittgenstein is asserting a kind of nominalist position versus Platonist position here. <clears throat> I know that's getting out of, I don't know if that's totally in your air, but like the idea that, that abstract entities or forms don't have existence, that the words are simply abstractions that we form driving from the objects rather than the form giving shape to objects, you might say. I'm, I'm not sure he has to commit himself one way or the other, because again, he's talking about kind of our internal constructs rather than reality uh, itself. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, this is epistemological more so than metaphysical. Yes. And, and so he, he's talking about how we know things rather than the reality of, of the world. Um, so, uh, but it, he just talked about the reality of the world, but, but, but when he talks about the reality of the world, everything is about our kind of our best shot at it. Like we're trying, trying to bring our, our picture into correspondence with reality while recognizing that we're probably never going to do it. And we're keep making best attempts while also trying to maintain an internal coherence with all the pictures that we have. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, pardon me for the interruption. No, no, that was helpful. Uh, so he he talks about these primitive signs or name, you know, these these names. Um, he says we can only ex explain them by elucidation, and ultimately they can only be understood when meaning is already known. So if you don't know what a dog is, someone can talk about dogs all day, and you're just going to kind of smile, and you're. You're not going to be really, you're not really going to know until, you know, or if they start talking about dogs without ever explaining what they mean by dog, you're going to be really confused. Um, you know, I, you, if you have kids, you've probably run into this when they're about four or five and they start catching terms being used in certain situations. So they try and use them as well and they're not getting them quite right. And so you kind of got to stop your, your kid and be like, well, well what do you mean by that? And they explain, and you're like, oh, okay, that that's the thing they're thinking about. They're using a different term, or they were using a term incorrectly, if what you know, based on sort of our communal understanding of the term. But if someone shared their that understanding of the term that, that your the four or five year old has, they would have followed along perfectly. This is this is what's going on with language. We have to understand kind of these basic these names these basic ideas um, and how they're being used by the, the person communicating in order to understand what's going on, um, which, you know, can lead to, uh, you know, a situation like I talked about last time where you have two people who are using the same words and have very different ideas. And so they both think, yeah, that's right. When in reality, they're actually drastically different. Um. I mean, I mean the 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 variables, you know. So you know, we talk about like aloha, 
And aloha is a tricky word because, I, I mean, I don't know Hawaiian. I've never been to Hawaii. Hope to go one day. But I've been told aloha means both hello and goodbye. And so you, if you just hear someone say aloha, you don't know if there's it's the things surrounding it that tell you whether it means hello or goodbye. It's not the word itself. Um, we also have times where, and this, this is kind of getting into the weeds, but I think it's an interesting weed, um, where we can have a word, but it be used in two as two different symbols. So for instance, if I say green is green, in the first sense of green, I'm talking about the noun, the color green. And in the second sense, I'm talking about it as an adjective, greenness, you know, of, 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 of whatever. And so according to Wittgenstein, those are actually two different symbols, two different things going on. And this is where language gets so complicated because we, there are times we use the same word in two different ways in the same sentence and that complicates it. And, and, but for us who have gotten used to language, who have gotten used to, to, to things, we, we do all of this processing where we, we can hear the word and understand what symbol is, is intended. But again, you think back to, to, you know, kids who are, who are, beginning to understand language, you know, usually three or four where they're talking and then they're trying to to get the more complex nuances of language. And the way that they try to use do this or or that they, they don't understand what's going when you say something because you've used language, you've used the word in two different ways in a very short span of time. And they're trying to understand both uses in the same way, but it doesn't work for them. And Wittgenstein is is again pointing out that our it's not that our picture is unclear. Our picture is clear. It's that that language, it's the signs, the symbols, the names, all of that that's getting complicated. That's getting difficult. And because of 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 these things, these these situations where the same word can be used in two ways, um that it, it can be used, words can be used as nouns and, and uh, adjectives without changing anything in the word. You know, all the, all this confusion, Wittgenstein says, you know, we need to, if we're going to avoid errors in our communication, we need to employ symbolism with distinction between signs with different meanings. And a system that, he says, a system which obeys rules of logical grammar. And really, to get that, we need a new syntax, a new form of, of, of how we communicate that doesn't depend on meaning in order to communicate. Uh, and this is where he starts to get into logic and the propositional signs and all of that kind of stuff. What he's trying to do here is he's trying to say, okay, how can we be as clear as we possibly can be? Well, we need to start, instead of talking about names, we need to start having variables and start, you know, we need to, to not be dependent on meaning for communication of ideas, 
um, to where the the meaning, you know, our language is so convoluted that words have m- multiple meanings. But rather, we need to we need to figure out a way to get at clear meaning. And by doing that, we have to have different symbols for the different meanings of everything. Um, and he's going to do that through introducing variables into our understanding. And um, But before he starts talking about truth functions and all that, he's going to give us Proposition 4 and discuss that, which is going to show us more about why we need some of this. Proposition 4 says, the thought is a significant proposition. So this is this is again a, a just a nugget that it's like wow this is this is a huge you know red flag that that should be you know telling us that there might this might not be uh the end all be all of communication. Um he says that you know we can construct languages without having an idea of what each word means. I mean we do that all the time. I mean again Young kids. If you have young kids, you see this all the time. I've got a two-year-old who's trying to figure stuff out, and it's adorable when she misuses things because we recognize what she's trying to say. Um, but the, here's here's where where Wittgenstein gets at something important. He says language disguises the thought. If the thought is a significant proposition, but language disguises it. He says, because we have these silent adjustments to understand colloquial language that are enormously complicated. I mean, I I have never successfully learned a to speak a foreign language. I, I mean, took three years of French in high school. Not that that did me a whole lot of good. I mean, I can sing a couple songs and know some a few basic things, but. Um, I've been told that that learning English as a second language is incredibly complicated because of not just our, you know, not just our syntax being kind of crazy in multiple ways, but that um, the colloquialisms are are so tricky. And if you grew up with that, you you just get them. You don't have well, not necessarily. Again, four or five year olds trying to understand colloquialisms is is humorous because. Um, sometimes you realize that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense even to someone who spoke English their entire life, uh, but it's how we use them. And because of of some of this, the language being you know disguising the thought by, by using colloquialisms and all that, and the meaning get, getting kind of lost or at least obscured or or put in a way that you have to to kind of see things the way that the, the person communicating sees things to understand exactly what they're saying. This leads to many propositions and, and even questions that we have being senseless. It doesn't mean they're false. It just means for our purposes, for, for what we're trying to communicate, there isn't sense to them. Now, that doesn't mean that they're senseless to everyone, but if you don't share the way that that person is is thinking, the way the person is seeing the world, if you're not you're not on the same page as them, you're going to have a hard. You're, it's it's going to be nonsense. I mean, when when if people are around when Travis and I are having conversations about theology and philosophy, I'm sure they think we're maybe speaking in tongues um, because. 
you know, we've we've spent enough time together that we know that certain words or certain phrases carry a whole lot more meaning than most people would think when we use those terms. But Travis and I have gotten so have gotten so used to talking with that term including so much more meaning that we can use it as shorthand and communicate clearly to each other in ways that no one else is really going to to fully understand what we're saying. Um, not only this, but if you think about it, even a lot of the objects that we can think of in the world are have are difficult to understand. What really is that object? Wittgenstein talks about the idea of of a symphony. Say, take Beethoven's Fifth. And what is that? Is it the musical score? Is it a certain recording? Is it, does it have to have a certain orchestration to be the symphony or can it be played on a piano? But when we talk about Beethoven's Fifth, it's the da 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 And we all like, you know, when you hear that, you're like, oh yeah, that's Beethoven's Fifth. I know that. And, but what is the symphony itself? Is it, it's not any particular performance. It's not the musical score because the musical score doesn't perform it. So what is the symphony? We all know the symphony, but, Getting clear on defining the symphony, that's tough. Wittgenstein would say that, that, that the symphony shows itself. It's not something that we can necessarily say what it is, but we can show what it is and kind of we, we come to understand what it is even if we can't clearly define what that is. The proposition, when it shows its sense, it shows how things stand if the proposition is true. What it says is that they do stand. So, so if I say the grass in my yard is green, that proposition shows you the picture of the grass in my yard being green. And it says that that is the case. The same proposition is doing two things for us, which again, this is what Wittgenstein is saying. This is why language is so incredibly complicated because it can show you something, but the, the what it shows you is if it is true. And then what it says is this is the state of affairs. Um, so these propositions construct worlds. They're, they they can see reality if, or they construct a reality that, that and it says this is what it looks like if it is true. It doesn't say that it is true. It says this is how it would look if it is true. And we have all of these different pictures going on in our heads that we're all trying to, to connect with reality. We're all trying to understand how this fits together. and. Communicating it is just, I think you're seeing the, it's it's incredibly, I mean, he says the thought is a significant proposition. You can see the significance of, of these propositions, what they're trying to show 
and say that it is at the same time. And Wittgenstein is actually going to say this is this is kind of getting confusing. I mean, you think about how when you translate language, and this is part of what's interesting with the Tractatus is I know an itty bitty bit about, about German. Not I know an itty bit of German, I know an itty bit about German. And so Wittgenstein wrote this in German. And so I'm relying on translators to help me get at what he's saying. And when they translate, there, there are multiple ways you can translate things. You can try and do a word by word. You can try and get the big idea. And you're going to get better translations depending on you know what one way or the other. When you have to understand both the parts that you're translating, but also the big idea in order to, to have a good translation. And this is part of what makes Bible translation so tricky too, is because you're finding that perfect balance between the two is incredibly difficult um, because we're not Hebraic. We're not you know, Greeks. We don't understand naturally the language that it comes from. And so trying to get it into what we understand is, is not just a matter of words, but it's a, a matter of culture and colloquialisms and all of those kinds of things as well. Um, let, uh, I'm, 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 gotta get back on track. <laughs> um, let me, let me read something that I think might help a little bit about what's going on. Cause you know, these propositions are trying to express truth, but you have to understand things in order to be able to, to say, you know, if they're true or false or whatever. So Wittgenstein says, this is 4.063. Um, an illustration to explain the concept of truth. A black spot on white paper. The form of the spot can be described by saying of each point of the plane, whether it is white or black. To the fact that a point is black corresponds a positive fact. To the fact that a point is white, not black, a negative fact. If I indicate a point of the plane, uh, this corresponds to the assumption proposed for the judgment, etc., etc. But to be able to say that a point is black or white, I must first know under what conditions a point is called white or black. In order to be able to say that a proposition is true or false, I must have determined under what conditions I call the proposition true or the variable true, and thereby I determine the sense of the proposition. What Wittgenstein is saying, once we understand how everything is set up, how everything works, well, then we can apply it. We can, we can plug in, you know, when, when I teach certain parts of logic, you know, we talk about, you know, plug and chug. You've got, you, you once you got, things set up right, then you can plug in your variables and you can chug through and figure out what your answer is. Um, but you have to be clear on what is being meant by those things before you can really do that, which is another reason why Wittgenstein kind of wants to pull things back and, and get us to just variables that have true or false uh, values, because then we can get at syntax that can tell us connect can tell us about the connections between variables and propositions rather than having to worry about all the meanings. That, uh, and we, he wants to get a, something where syntax is 
is helpful rather than the pictures are helpful. Um, this this is building up to uh, what is one of the most important propositions of the book. Uh, in 4.113, he says, philosophy limits the disputable sphere of natural science. 4.114, he says, it should limit the thinkable and thereby the unthinkable. It should limit the unthinkable from within through the thinkable. 4.115, it will be, it will mean the unspeakable by clearly displaying the speakable. 4.116, everything that can be thought at all can be thought clearly. Everything that can be said can be said clearly. This is leading up to 4.1212. What can be shown cannot be said. So if you can show it, show it clearly. If you can say it, it can be said clearly. But when you try and show what can only be said or say what can only be shown, you're going to have all kinds of problems when it comes to clarity. So if our language is trying to say the pictures, the pictures show meaning. The pictures don't say meaning. So the pictures aren't going to be able to be said. Said in the sense that we can clearly communicate it without any concern about it, it, it being misunderstood. This is where you start to see how the logical positivists latched onto Wittgenstein and are like, ah, yes, yes, we can only say things, we're getting to the idea that we can only say things that have variables, that we can take truth values and know that if this thing's true, then we can verify that it's true, then we can get all these other truths from it because of the truth of the relations and so on and so forth. And they missed the whole, what can be clearly, or what can, anything that can be shown can be clearly shown. Or anything that can be thought at all can be thought clearly, which says that there's things that are thought, are pictures that can be clearly thought but communicating them is going to be a different issue. Now, Wittgenstein is going to go from here to say, okay, what, what can we say? What can we say clearly? And that's what five and six are going to show us while also reminding us, oh, well, here's how we would say something clearly, but there's a whole lot of things that we can't say clearly that seem to have deep meaning to them. But we'll talk about that in the next episode. So again, proposition three was saying the logical picture of the facts is the thought. Proposition four is the thought is a significant proposition. And throughout all of this, he's reminding us there's meaning, there's meaning, there's meaning. Communicating that is a tricky, tricky, tricky thing, but we should try to find a way to communicate the best we can.
Okay. Thoughts or comments, Travis? <laughs> well, I don't have any significant thoughts. Um, so again, this seems to be in a way that when I when I read it, you know, some time ago, not recently, uh, I was not catching these things. How he keeps hinting toward Proposition Seven at the end of six, or the second half of six and seven. Um, so. Uh, so in some way is, is what he's saying that, uh, logic, uh, truth, functional logic serves as a very clear way of talking about what it's capable of talking about. The error comes when we try to make that talk about things that's not supposed to be, it's incapable of talking about that is things that can be shown. So there's what can be said and what can be shown. And those do, if we had a uh, Venn diagram of those, there would be no overlap. Yes. And, and to help make that point, he's go, it is what he's setting up in five and six. Now, again, he's not, he's not saying that, you know, we we can say nothing. That um, he's he's going to to set up this truth functional logic that um, understood correctly can say a lot about the world, mm-hmm. um, because we can plug in information um, into into variables that and elementary propositions that are going to be able to to show us things, but what we've done is we've bought into is to do that. We have to limit uh, things to uh, limit our, our variables, the things that can be inserted in for variables for things that have clear and verifiable truth values, whether they're true or false. Um, and we're going, I mean, if you've listened to the podcast or, you know, just if you, you know, think very long, you start to think, oh, there's a, there's a lot of things that aren't clearly verifiably true or false in, in the way we typically think about it. Um, so what's, what are we going to do with those things? And, and Wittgenstein will, will tell us, um, will, will communicate to us. So I would say he'll, he'll, he'll show us what, what to do. Well, okay. So let me ask one question. And this, this may be more for, again, the end as well. What you're suggesting, because we mentioned the logical positivists uh, in the first episode when we were introducing this, the logical positivists believed uh, that statements that cannot be empirically verified are are technically nonsense. They're not false. They're just meaningless nonsense. Mm-hmm. It sounds like what Wittgenstein is saying is, they're obviously not meaningless nonsense. They're full of meaning, but they cannot be stated. Your problem, logical positivists, is you're trapped into what can be clearly said. So Wittgenstein might even grant that within a language, they are senseless. Um, okay. And and that, that there's not meaning within that language. Within the, uh, within the, within the, if you say, yeah, something that cannot be empirically verified, that is part of the world that is the facts that are the case, 
uh, going back to the first propositions, uh, they don't have meaning within that. And so we fail. And this, again, this might be something we jump to later on too, but this might even talk a little bit about uh, the, if we were to think of like Eastern Christian theology and their focus on the apophaticism or the via negativity, via negativa, that our doctrines are really about not what actually is the case or not, they're not making positive claims about God, but they're making negative claims as in God is not that. So when we say God is infinite, for you know, this is maybe the most obvious example, when we say God is infinite, what we mean is he's, God is not finite. What does it mean for God to be infinite? It just means that God's not finite. We can't, we can't really explain the positive content of the infinite because you can't do that, right? It's just not something that can be said. It's what we're saying is if you, if you take what God is, who God is, and put him into something that is finite and describable, you're wrong. God is something other than that, which, and that's or, maybe or, not exactly. Or more than that. Or Yeah, more than that. Yeah, something that cannot be contained. It, God cannot be put within the container of clear propositional language. Right. Right. Well, yeah. And and I, I mean, I think which, this is that puts where... us in. There's going to, have to be some explanation of that because that might be like, I mean, your someone's initial reaction might be, yeah, God's greater than that. But then we're saying something like, are we saying that God exists is beyond the idea of true and false? Because now it sounds like we're getting to some weird Buddhism stuff. So th- this is, we'll get into more of this with propositions five and six and, and, you know, also talking about where the, where the logical positivists went wrong. But I think what, what's worth saying is um, at this point is how we define what has meaning in our language, what, and, and when we get into this logical stuff, it's going to be propositions that are true or false and how the truth or falsity is determined is the key to what can have meaning in that language, not what actually has meaning or, or okay. what meaning, what meaning that language can communicate as opposed to what actually has meaning. There's a difference between communicable meaning and meaning um, or clearly. Commu- and, and so what Wittgenstein's trying to do is he's trying to say, okay, how, let's, let's try and get clear on some meaning that we can communicate to each other and and it's going to come down to these variables that can be that the truth or falsity determines how they relate to each other and and the operations that are done on these and and the relations and that's going to give us some information about reality um but it's interesting that i don't think i'm still reviewing five and six to get clear but i think where the uh logical positivists went wrong is they took that idea of truth or falsity and they said, well, we believe that it has to be empirically verified to be true or false. Therefore, you know, they, they baked into their, you know, into their language and got the results that they ultimately wanted in excluding God and ethics and all that kind of beauty and all that kind of stuff from it having meaning. Um, 
because of how they define what what's going to have meaning and what they can communicate. Now, I mean, again, we'll talk about this more next time. And we're going to see that it makes sense that there is something to be said for, for going that route because um, in, in trying to focus on empirical verification, because that is one way that we can all agree and we can communicate with each other on some important things. Right. Um, right. But it brings a lot of clarity. Yes. And, and I think re rethinking communication to, from just we communicate meaning to what is communicable meaning and what is meaning that is not easily communicable or maybe not even at all communicable um what's going on with those those things and i think and we'll get into this next time but i think we there's some neat uh connections with kierkegaard uh some that we can talk about um especially but I mean, and, and to put these cards on the table, you know, Wittgenstein uh, thought Kierkegaard was the greatest mind of the 19th century, um, which given that he studied under Russell and, is, and who's arguably the one of the greatest analytical thinkers of the 20th century, um, and Kierkegaard is not at all what is typically considered analytic philosophy, yeah. and he was also heavily influenced by William James, who is a pragmatist. Wittgenstein is a fascinating combination of multiple strains of philosophical thought, all of which are getting, all of which you can see glimpses of in Wittgenstein, and I think help point us to to truth in a way that uh, can be missed with any of those independent of the other two. Right. Well, I was gonna, I was, I wanted to say something about Kierkegaard's idea that paradox is the passion of reason, and how that may relate. But I'm going to leave that be, and maybe we can touch on that later. So, but I think we're going to wrap this up. I don't have any more questions. I'm just trying to learn myself. So, on that note, thanks for listening, and this is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.